Welcome to the Authentic Church Podcast with Jeff and Fawn Peterson in Orange County, California, where our mission is simply to love God, love people, and live authentic. For more information on Authentic Church, visit us online at AuthenticOC.com. Thank you for listening. What a beautiful presence of the Lord here this morning. Can you sense the Spirit of God at work in here today? There's just, there's like a tenderness of the Spirit of God here. And I I can feel that. And I just want to partner with that this morning. And so, Lord, we believe, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Amen. Um, I want to just honor um, Pastor Jeff and Fawn and their family. Thank you so much for being such wonderful friends of mine and um, people who care so deeply about others. I'm just so grateful for you. Thank you for allowing me to come and share this morning. And um, I'm so grateful that Pastor Jeff feels fit to give me some of the most difficult subjects to talk about. Uh, (laughs) Kidding, not kidding, actually. Um, Because today we're going to, today is actually a message of hope. And I want to emphasize that from the beginning. This is a message of hope. It's going to get a little dirty in the first part but it's going to lead to hope. So today, you know, we're, we're going through as a church, you're going through, Authentic is going through as a church, foundation stones for right living. And these are like building blocks that will replace the crumbling lies of a broken foundation that society tries to give us and put the truth, the infallible, strong truth of the word of God in our lives. And so that's what we're trying to do together as a body, that we are building a solid foundation, not based on what society says, but based on what the word of God says. This is our foundation for life. So today we get to talk about sin. Is everyone excited? We're going to go through a list from A to Z of everything that would be considered sin. And we're going to hand out a piece of paper and have you just mark it off. And then we're just going to, just kidding. We're not going to do that. But we are going to talk about the reality of sin. And we're going to talk about the hope in the gospel. Okay. So this is leading us up to next week where we'll also talk about the atonement and the power of the atonement. But today I want to, I want to request of you that don't, don't check out. Okay. Because the Holy spirit is the one who brings conviction of sin and of righteousness, but he never leads us in that place of conviction. And it's not supposed to lead us to condemnation. The spirit of the living God brings us to a place of conviction so that there can be godly sorrow unto repentance, unto life and change. So I want to ask you, would you keep your mind and your spirit engaged as we talk about this? Because I believe this can be a foundation stone that can help bring freedom and life and hope to you rather than condemnation, fear, and death. Amen? All right. So today we're going to talk about the reality of sin, the human predicament. Houston, we have a problem. I mean, can we look around the world and say, something is wrong? It does not take a rocket scientist to look around this world and say, um, I think we might have a bit of a problem here. There's some things that are not going the way that evolutionary science should say that they are. There's some things that are wrong, right? We don't have to look very far from that. Separation from God, from one another, confusion. We don't know what our purpose is. Selfishness, war, death, hatred, prejudice, 
racism, violence, injustice, murder, human trafficking, drug cartels, breakdown in family relationships, divorce, loneliness, pain, suicide. The list could go on and on and on. All you have to do is open one of your news apps and you will recognize quickly, oh, we have got a problem in this world. Our physical world even suffers from, this, from sin and decay, disease, famine, natural disasters, the, the tension that we feel in this world. Our world is actually subject to the curse of the fallen nature of sin. But if you would ask most people on the streets, they would say, I'm pretty much a good person. You know, I'm, not, I'm not evil. I'm not terrible. Most people consider themselves to be decent human beings. The idea of humanity as a whole being sinful or bad in nature is something that we reserve for those select few people that earn that place in humanity of being evil or wicked or like a, like, like a dictator, right? We could, we could list off some of those people. Well, I'm not like that person. I'm not like that leader. I'm not like them. I'm a pretty good person. So in many ways, we live in a society today that calls evil good and good evil. We tend to lighten the severity or the reality of sin as it pertains to us personally. We're like, we can see, I can see sin in somebody else real easy. But when I look in the mirror, I'm like, pretty, pretty good. I'm doing all right, you know. Um, personal responsibility is not something that we like in our society anymore. When was the last time that you heard a politician stand up and say, I, you know what? I take credit for that. I voted for that, and it was wrong. It did not turn out well. When is the last time we heard that kind of humility from leadership? These are dying virtues in a society where truth is ever more relative to what we believe it should be and what we think is right for our own body. Can we, can we agree with that? that that's, what, that's, what, that's the direction our society is going. It is not at all politically or society, it's not correct to say that there is sin. To call something that is wrong in the eyes of God, it is sin. It's, so Christianity, this worldview that we're talking about, is really an affront to the culture that we live in today. But let's go back to that question. Is humanity actually good or evil by nature? When we look around at our society and we look at our history, would we say that we're primarily good people that sometimes mess up and do less than noble things? Or is humanity inherently evil, bad, stricken with total depravity? Something is wrong from the inside out. We tend to compare ourselves to the worst of the worst. Well, I'm not so bad compared to Hitler, compared to Stalin, compared to Al Capone, compared to you name it. I mean, I might not be like Mother Teresa, but uh, pretty good. I haven't done, we, we pick out the big, the big nasty sins, right? I, I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't cheated on my taxes. I haven't stolen something from Walmart recently. But in God's economy, what is good? What does humanity call good versus what does God call good? Is it anything like what we say good is? We are so accustomed. We have actually acclimated to the brokenness of a world that is full of pain and sickness and selfishness and evil. It's like we're in a dirty fish tank, but we can't see that it's dirty because we are so used to it. We don't understand what holiness is because we're so used to a broken world. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end is death. Isaiah 64, 6 and 7 says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. 
All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf and the wind, our sin sweeps us away. No one calls on your name or strives to lay hold of you for you've hidden your face from us and you've given us over to our sins. You know that, that phrase, all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. It's kind of a disgusting analogy, actually. The, the, the terminology used is menstrual rags. It's like disgusting in God's eyes. What we would consider good is filthy, gross, and disgusting in God's eyes. Psalm 53, one through three says, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There's no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together, they have all become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Romans says this as well. There's none righteous. No, not one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks after God, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, man, kind, man as a whole, we're, we're really an enemy of God because of the nature of sin within us. The Bible actually says that we are dead in our sin and trespasses in Ephesians chapter two. So let me ask you a question. Do we sin because we're sinners by nature? Or are we sinners because we sin? Does everyone like start out with a clean slate somehow and a chance to do really good or just die trying? Or is there something, is, is sin external to us? Like I play in the mud and my hands get muddy and I can just wash it off and call it good. Or is sin something that's more internal, like the DNA, the genetics of an apple seed that only produces apples? Let's take a look at what the Bible actually has to say about this, because this is our standard for living. And society will say one thing, but the Bible will say another. So let's look at what is sin. And here's where we get out those pieces of paper with all, just kidding. So our society, in many ways, we've eliminated the need or the, to acknowledge any personal responsibility or the consequences of sin or error. We, we like blame shift so quickly. We point fingers. Humility and leadership is actually seen as a weakness these days rather than a strength. So acknowledging personal responsibility is one of the first ways that true change actually happens. You cannot really change unless you acknowledge that there's something wrong. So what are the five hardest words to say in the English language? I was wrong. I'm sorry. Okay, now turn to your neighbor. Give it a try. I was wrong. I'm sorry. For some of you couples, I just solved your argument on the way to church. I'll send you the bill for marital counseling later. <laughs> Humility is hard, is it not? Like to say, to acknowledge, um, I was wrong. That was not a good move, and I'm sorry. The essence of sin, the Bible says, is actually self-centeredness. It's self-will as opposed to God's will. Pride was actually the very first sin through Satan, which is rooted in self, the fruit of every kind of sin that has ever been known to man, and there's nothing new under the sun. The, the, the root of it is self it's pride and selfishness. You, you name it, lying, cheating, murder, adultery, stealing, hatred, violence. The root of it is self. Our desire to do things our way instead of God's way. So let's look at some scriptural definitions of sin. There's a couple words that the Bible uses to describe sin. 
um, iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we see this in a couple of scripture verses. I've chosen one here in Isaiah 59, verse 12. It says, for our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us as for our iniquities, we know them. So iniquity, you see here, is um, moral evil, depravity, perversity, guilt of a crime, unjustness, unrighteousness. Transgression is rebellion or a trespass, like a moral revolt or disobedience. And sin, these are, these are the biblical definitions that you'll find like in Strong's Concordance or something. Sin is an of, a, a offense or a habitual condition. But the Bible actually gives us a couple of ver- a scripture verses that really outline the nature of what is sin. So let's take a look at a few of those. I'm going to go through these kind of quickly, but if anyone wants notes for any of these afterwards, I'm more than happy to share notes. So sin is whatever is contrary to the nature of God. This is really fundamental for us to understand because God is holy. He's righteous. He's perfectly just. He's perfectly merciful. He is pure in all of his ways. So anything that is contrary to the nature of God is sin. Does that redefine what we think of as good? Like I'm kind of good? Well, compared to Hitler, maybe, but compared to God, can I really say I'm good? No, not really. Deuteronomy 32.4 says, The rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness without iniquity, just and upright is he. Romans 4.15 says that sin is the transgression of the law. Transgression is like an outward act crossing a boundary. If Jeff says, don't do this, here's the line, don't do that, that's the line. Transgression is like, mm-hmm, I just did that. Okay, so that's transgression. Whoever commits sin commits lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, let me make a caveat point here. There's a difference between God's standards of law and human standards of law. Just because something is legal in terms of human government does not make it right in the eyes of God. We're called to honor government. We're called to pray for them, for those in authority. But if the government mandates or enacts laws based on sinful human standards that cause us to violate the law of God, then we have to choose God's law over man's law right? With humility, with honor, but his law is first. All unrighteousness is sin, 1 John 5, 17 says. James 4, 17 says, therefore to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Ooh, there's a few things that I could probably put in that category in my life. Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not of faith is sin. You know, the Bible says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because he who comes to God must acknowledge that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So whatever is not of faith, it's impossible to please God without faith. Proverbs 24, 9 says the thought of foolishness is sin. I can think of a few foolish thoughts that I've had over time. Um, Sin is rebellion against God. And rebellion against his authority. It's it's something that from the inside where there's this rebellious nature. How many of you or your children's first word was no? No. I mean, it doesn't, you don't have to teach a child that. Where do they learn that? They come up with it, right? There's this uh, story of a, of a school teacher that was trying to get an unruly child to sit there. Charlie, sit down. You pay attention. Charlie, sit down. Finally, Charlie sits down and he says, I'm sitting down right now, but I'm standing up on the inside. 
That is rebellion. It's something from the inside that we're like, I'm going to be in defiance to that. How many of you like, like if somebody says, don't look over there, we immediately want to look over there. Like something in us is drawn to rebellion, right? Sin is an inner disposition of iniquity. This is actually really important for us to understand because, okay, so in Psalm 32, 5, this is David's prayer when he's, after he has sinned with Bathsheba and he's acknowledged his sin. And he says, I acknowledged my sin before you and I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. There's something within us with this inner disposition towards sin. It's not going to look the same for everyone. There's certain things that I've never struggled with in life. And I've ne- we were even talking about this last night. There's certain things that it's just, it's never been a temptation for me, but I can't say that about somebody else. So when was the last time you saw two toddlers sit down with their favorite toy and a battle of generosity ensued? No, really, you take it first. No, 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 you take mine, mine, mine. I mean, this, this is, for, this is from, from youth, right? It's something inside of us that like, I want my way. Now, translate in, it, that into us as adults, where we say, I was, I was born this way, I can't help it. My daddy had a temper. My grandpa had a temper. My great-grandpa had a temper. I just explode sometimes. I was born this way. I can't help it. Well, maybe you were born that way. Maybe you were. Maybe there was an inner disposition of sin inside of you, but it doesn't justify staying in that path of sin. Sin is to miss the mark. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ultimately, I want us to catch this point. Sin is anything that separates us from relationship with God or others. We were all born with this gravitational pull towards selfishness. History, the human experience bears witness to this very, very readily. Sin is self-centeredness and the catastrophic consequences of it is death. Let's pray. No. How did we get, how did we get into this predicament? All right. If this is something that's a part of us all, how did we get here? Um, How many of you went to Sunday school as children? We're going to go back to Sunday school for just a minute. I'm not going to pull out the felt board, but I want you to track with me because sometimes there's some really important things in Sunday school that we may have missed that helps shape our theology later on. All right. So the word of God reveals that sin first entered the universe through Satan and then into humanity through Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Probably later on in the foundations class teaching, you'll get into demons and angels and Satan and all of that stuff. So we're not going to go there right now. However, I'll just make it known that Satan was, a, he, was first na- named Lucifer. He was a created being, a cherub guardian angel. And part of his responsibility was actually to, to cover God with worship and with glory. And Ezekiel talks about that pride was found in Satan's heart. He chose pride. He said, I will be like the most high. I will ascend unto high. I will receive worship. And so pride is the first sin that's recorded. And it was a choice to take glory from God to self first. And then we see that transition into humanity. Very first, Adam and Eve. I mean, do you ever wonder, like, come on, Adam and Eve, couldn't you have just waited a few generations so we could see what it was like to live holy and pure and righteous? No. First man, first woman, boom, down they go. So sin enters into humanity first through the Garden of Eden. We know the story. We're familiar with it. 
tree of knowledge of good and evil, tree of life. God gives them one command. Man and woman are created in the image of God with a purpose, with identity. They're created pure. They're created innocent, without shame, without guilt. They're given one command. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One command in a perfect world, mind you. Okay? And then Satan comes like a snake who's talking. Don't understand that. But nevertheless, he comes as a snake, as a serpent, and he tests the word of God. Did God really say? The consequences won't be that bad. You're not going to die. God knows he's holding out on you. He's holding something back from you. He's not good. You can have it your way. Just taste. Just see. They fall into sin. Eve is deceived. Adam sins willfully. Apparently he was there. He didn't try to stop it. He sins with eyes wide open. Eve is deceived. They fall into sin and immediately shame enters society. Fear, hiddenness, death. I've heard people say, well, they didn't die in that day. Yes, they did. They died spiritually. We are spirit, soul, and body. They died spiritually. They were separated from God. The effect, man tries to cover himself, hide from God, right? Instantly loses fellowship, dies spiritually, and becomes subject to physical death. We see sin and death are immediately at work in the world. We also see a seed concept here that I want to highlight that unfolds throughout the rest of scripture. There's a reason I'm going all the way back to the garden because this is very important for you to understand how sin works so that through the power of the cross, we can walk in victory over it. Okay, so the seed concept is God approached them first. God approached them first. They were hiding. They tried to cover themselves. God comes to them and says, Adam, where are you? I don't think he said that with anger. I think he said it with grief. Adam, where are you? I wanted to go on a walk with you today. I wanted to talk with you like we normally do. Where are you, Adam? I hear in that cry the desire of a God who wants relationship. He provided for them. He didn't come at them with anger. He covered their sin. Now we see in, in this very first instant a concept of a seed that God clothed them in the skin of another. Now it's alluded to, it's not specifically outlined, but we kind of can presume that this is the first instance, instance of, of blood sacrifice. Animals, something had to die for them to be clothed in skins. Right? So we see this seed concept that will be developed throughout the rest of scripture. Adam was humanity's representative. He was placed in the garden with, with a purpose to govern, to steward. He was a representative of all of humanity. This concept of representation is actually really important to understand the nature of sin and the power of the cross. So after Adam and Eve fall into sin, they have family of their own. Their children are born in their image and in their likeness. We see immediately sin and death at work. Cain kills Abel. Hatred, the first murder. We see immediately the cycle of sin and death. And from that point on, every man is born into the image and in the nature of Adam. How do we know? You have a belly button. <laughs> We're all linked to that first man and woman. We are actually through our bloodline. I'm, I'm sort of being serious, but we're, we're actually linked through that bloodline to Adam. Now, 
I want to introduce a spiritual term here, a theological term. Okay, through Adam, sin was imputed to all. In theological terms, we call this original sin, that, that Adam's sin became all of humanity's predicament. Okay, the innateful sinfulness of man was passed down to all of humanity through Adam. Romans 5 identifies this. It says, therefore, as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all men sinned. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Now, if you're anything like me, my brain at that point says, that is absolutely not fair. That's not fair. I didn't do it. He did. Hold on to that thought because that same thought's going to be turned absolutely on its head through the cross. All right? No, it's not fair that sin was imputed to all humanity, but it's also not fair that grace is imputed to us through Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's look at, let's, let's, let's sidestep here and go one little tiny bit into the logic of sin. God created man to have a purpose, to have a love relationship with him. In order for love to truly be love, and that we're not just these created robots following God because we have to, in order for love to truly be love, there has to be choice involved. So God gave mankind a free will. Maybe it was a bit of a limited free will. We don't know for sure. I'm not going to get into that argument. But he gave man free will. It was necessary. What we do with free will reveals a relationship more than anything, which actually reminds me, Jeff, is my purse right next to you? It's right here on the ground. Um, hold on. What we do with free will says more about the relationship that we have with someone than anything. Jeff, this is your credit card that I've had for like two months. I'm sorry. <laughs> You'll find a few charges on there for a couple of airplanes, a couple of trips to Tahiti. And what you do with freedom actually says a lot about the relationship. <laughs> now, I probably should have mailed that to you about a month ago, but I forgot. <laughs> sorry. I forgot it was in my purse, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> I had his credit card, but I didn't abuse it. God didn't create sin. He created a boundary. He created a restriction, which it seems like theologically this may have been connected to a process of maturity. There may have been a time when God said, okay, now you can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We don't know. We don't know what level of maturity and choice Adam and Eve were created with, but he didn't create sin. He created free possibility with the inherent possibility to choose to love is also the possibility to choose not to love, right? So choice, free will kind of leads us to this possibility of sin. So when man, God created man, he created Adam and Eve, and then they had more. Well, there's more than one person with free will. And when you get more than one person in the world with free will, eventually that free will is going to conflict with one another, right? So for, for harmony to exist, there has to be some concept of order that is put into place in society, which means there must be some sort of a common standard or a common law to keep order for free-willed human beings. And in order for that law to actually mean anything, there has to be some sort of leadership or authority or representation to which obedience is given. 
Okay, so we see in this the initial uh, blueprint of government that God put in place, authority for the sake of order, for the sake of peace. God put this in place first with Adam, and this is the model of government that we see first through Adam, then through Israel, and then through pretty much every society in the world. Adam and Eve, they only had one law to keep, though. And they violated God's command. As humanity's representative, Adam passes this sin nature onto his sons. We see immediately this struggle that's taking place with sin. Some of you are probably very, very familiar with this struggle. The Lord actually says to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you don't do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. We see this this struggle with sin from the beginning. Even though God covered them, there was still a struggle, right? So lawlessness separates humanity from God. The wickedness of humanity increases really, really quickly. And then all of a sudden we get to this chapter in the Bible where we talk about this guy named Noah. We sanitize this so much cute little ark with animals coming into the ark and it's beautiful rainbow. All of humanity was destroyed. This sinful, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. Like, I can't imagine the, the, the cries, the pain, the sin of humanity got to the point where God was willing to destroy all of humanity, except for one family. So humanity's light and of, of legacy of, of life almost goes out. And then all of a sudden, we see this guy come on the scene named Abraham. And there's this seed thought in there of faith and righteousness through faith. Hold on to that because that's going to be really, really, really important as we get into the concept of the atonement. I'm trying to paint a picture of how this legacy of sin passed from generation to generation until we find ourselves in this place where we're all in the midst of it, right? So there's a glimpse of hope in Abraham, but we see the storyline progress through another representative. And this is one of Israel's um, calls and, and purposes, is that they were a representative nation of how God would deal with humanity. So we see God implemented all of these laws. Adam and Eve had one. Israel gets like 613. Oh, I mean, in a broken world, they get all these laws. But you know what? The law of God was intended to reveal the holiness of God. It was intended to reveal how does God come to a holy creator? How does man come to a holy creator? So we see that the, the righteous standards, um, it, it sets apart Israel as a people. It, it makes promises about salvation to come through a Messiah. We see this concept of one on behalf of many. We see even like throughout Israel's history, this, this concept of sacrificial blood offerings, atonement for sin, temporary covering year after year after year after year. There was so much blood involved. Aren't you grateful that we don't live under that covenant where there was so much death and, and, and sacrifice involved? I think about that sometimes. It's like, oh man, I, I mean, my, my job is not to clean up the ashes on the altar. Thank you. <laughs> Right? Um, so as try as they hard, as hard as they try, Israel cannot keep these laws. So not as much from the standpoint of being able to physically perform a law, but their hearts turn away from God. Their hearts turn away again and again and again through idolatry, 
through, through unbelief. They could, you know, the reason they couldn't enter the promised land is not because they didn't obey the law. It's because they didn't believe. So we see this, this principle through Israel and then through every single society throughout history. How do we think that the, the concept of religions even came to place? How do we think that this, this idea of appeasing the wrath of some God ever even came into place? Because all of humanity is infected with this disease. From the gladiators to the Inquisition to the Holocaust to the Crusades to, to the poor and downtrodden to the abuse of women and children throughout history to, to brokenness and divorce and, and, and societies and genocides throughout cu cultures and society all around the world. We do not have to look far in humanity to see this is a really, really, really bad problem. And we don't seem to be able to fix it. Human governments are not doing a great job at fixing this. Can we all agree on that? Like we look to human government and yeah, maybe there's a form of order. Maybe there's a form of peace, but we are broken people and we are in need of help. Okay, but if we're all in the midst of this, if we're all on the Titanic of sin, let the music play. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Like, I mean, uh, hey, we're going down. We might as well enjoy it. I mean, is that, is that, is that a response? Or is there hope in the midst of humanity's brokenness? Maybe in this story of representation, Adam's sin being imputed to all of humanity, there's actually a seed of hope that we need to tuss out a little bit more. So why is sin a problem? One, we're separated from God. God wants to be in relationship with mankind. We're separated from him in sin and trespasses. Now, I can say that in theological words, but to be separated from the author of your life, from the one, the only one who knows purpose and destiny and why you even exist. There's hopelessness in that if you don't know him. You know, I mean, what's the result of that? Without God, we have no purpose. If we are just an accident, there's no purpose and there's no hope. So I would rather believe that there's hope because there's created purpose. And even though sometimes I feel far from God, I would, I would rather believe that there's hope, right? Ephesians 2.12 says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You guys, this is how so much of humanity lives. Absolutely hopeless because they do not know there's a God that created them and that has life for them. The brokenness of our world is crying out for life, crying out for hope, crying out for justice. The sting of sin and death affects our world. It affects people, groups, and nations. It affects our families. It affects our own hearts. Mankind, in our pride and our selfishness, we tend to suppress the reality of God and we stay in a state of sinful rebellion against him. Romans 1, um, the whole passage from about verse 18 through the end of the chapter talks about this, that man in his sinfulness and his unrighteousness preferred to, to suppress the truth and actually honor and glorify the created being and thus was darkened and foolish in their mind. This passage in Romans talks about. And the reality is we cannot fix this predicament on our own. Without a mediator, we are all infected with this disease. We are held captive under the law 
of sin and death. We're in bondage. We're in slavery without God. Second Peter 2.19 says, a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Now, I may be preaching to the choir here. You guys might be like, yeah, I know. I've been struggling with this for like 25 years. I don't, I don't want to so take away the personal aspect of how this has affected us. This has broken our families. Do you realize that the divorce rate in the church is equal to or higher than the rest of the world right now? You know how much that hurts the legacy of family and the identity of children? Many of you have, have been raised in that scenario. Many of you have known brokenness, uh, addictions in your own life that have just like come to steal, kill, and destroy the very life out of you. This is not something that's out there. This is something that affects all of us. There's this, there's this desire in us that like yearns for sin, actually. In our sinful nature, James talks about this, that, that we're tempted, we're drawn away by the very lusts of our own flesh. And when the lusts of our flesh, the desire in us meets the opportunity for sin, without intervention, sin is born. You know, the Bible actually uses terminology like birth and conception to talk about sin. We might think of certain sins like a little scrape on the finger. Oh, it kind of annoys me a little bit. It hurts. It might get a little bit infected, but you know, I'm going to be fine. But the reality is sin is like a cancer. It might start what we think is small and manageable, but it never stays there. It always, no, you, no child in their first grade essays, when they first begin to start writing and say, one day I'm going to grow up to be a murderer. No one starts out that way. No one starts out with this, this desire from the beginning to get divorced or to suffer from, from, from patterns of sinfulness. Nobody, nobody has that as a desire. We, we want to be good people, but there's something in us that's like tugging against that reality. Sin starts out small, but it always ends in death unless there is a mediator, unless there's somebody to intervene. The reality is that Sin demands justice. It demands justice. Now, you might be saying, well, can't God just ignore sin? Can he just turn the other way and like forget about it for a while? No, he absolutely cannot. And I'm going to tell you why, because it will actually give you confidence. God cannot ignore the reality of sin or the consequences of sin because God is always true to his nature. He is always holy. He is always just. He is always perfectly righteous. He always follows through with what he says. And when he said the response, the, the penalty of sin is death, he actually meant it. That should actually give us confidence in the nature of God. Because God is so faithful to his word that he says the reality of sin is death, that should give us confidence that God is true to who he says he is. He is just. Now, something in mankind, we love justice when it's for somebody else, right? Like somebody commits a horrible crime and we're like, yeah, get him, get him. And we want justice for other people, but we don't want it for ourselves. We want mercy for ourselves. But God is not like a parent who says, I mean it, get over here. I said, listen, one, two, Three, no, I really, really mean, I'm, there's going to be a consequence. I mean it. One, two, two and, a, two and a half. No, God is not like that. What he says he does, what he promises he fulfills on. 
And, and because of that, we can have confidence in his solution. You know, the truth is we don't really understand the holiness of God. Sometimes we make light of sin because I don't think we understand the holiness of God. We see in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this encounter in the throne room of God. And all of a sudden, he's standing in the throne room of God. And the train of God's robe fills, the glory of God fills the temple. And he's, what is he stricken with is, oh my God gosh, I'm a sinful man. I dwell among a sinful people, the holiness of God. He all of a sudden sees his sinfulness and his need to be healed. I don't think we understand the holiness of God or we'd have a bigger fight against the reality of sin. Even from the very beginning of time, we see these questions like ring out through history. Job says, can mortal man be made right before God? Can a man be made pure before his maker? Is there no arbiter between us? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing? Where then is my hope? You know, this is what humanity is looking for, is hope. There's a generation of people that are lost and broken, and they're looking for hope. They're looking towards everything that they can think of for hope. Because we recognize that there's something wrong. And we try and fill it with everything. Even the very best of us. Who would we say is the best person who's ever lived? I don't know. Mother Teresa? She's often set forth as the standard. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that he was blameless in terms of righteousness concerning the law. That he was perfect. He perfectly upheld the righteousness of the law. But even Paul acknowledged the cycle of sin and death in his life. Romans 7 says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want to do, but the very thing that I don't want to do, I end up doing. I agree then with the law that God is good, that it's good. So now it's no longer I who does it, but sin that's dwelling inside of me. I know that nothing good dwells in me. That's in my own flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good thing that I want to do, but the evil that I don't want to do, that's what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells in me. Can you guys relate to this a little bit? So I find a law to be at work when I want to do right, Evil is close by. I delight in the law of God in my heart, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? These are Paul's words. He said he was blameless according to the law of God. And he says, who will deliver me from this wretched body of death? Can you see the effect of sin in our world? Can you see the effect of sin in your own family? Are you tired of carrying this weight? I can be. I am. What do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Are we all like st stuck? No. There's hope in the storyline from the very beginning. From the very entrance of sin into the world, we see God's approach to dealing with it. He approached mankind first. He made a way where there was no way. He introduced this concept of covering, atoning for sin, appeasing sin. 
substitutionary death on behalf of another. So even from the beginning of man's failure, God enacted a plan of hope, one that would bring life and freedom from the law of sin and death. In Adam, we all sinned. In Israel, we see that neither the works of the law nor even the the, the temporary substitutionary blood sacrifices were the permanent answer to the problem. These things point to the greatest representative, our great high priest, our intercessor, our true and living hope. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in this. It says that while we were still weak, he died for us. That concept of substitution, of representation, in Adam all sinned. But Romans 5 says that in Jesus Christ, all of us can find life. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. How much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Isaiah 53 says that the Messiah was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was upon his shoulders, and by his stripes we are healed. It says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. I don't understand that. He's put him to grief. He made his soul an offering for sin. Well, you might say to me, well, Casey, I've, I've been a believer for many years, and I still struggle with sin. What's the hope for me now? So many times the reason we still struggle with sin is because we don't realize the way that it works. We are spirit, soul, and body. When we give our lives to the Lord and we say, I'm going to take, I'm going to receive that imputed righteousness from what you did, that one act of righteousness, that substitutionary death. You took the penalty. You took the sin through your death on the cross. When we take that onto ourselves, sometimes we also don't, we don't, we don't realize the lies that we have believed that sin still has power over us. Listen, if there is a representative from a dictatorial country that comes to me in my house in the United States and says, you are guilty of a crime in our nation and the punishment is death and we're going to extradite you from the United States and take you and we're going to try you for what you did wrong. No, no, it doesn't work that way. I'm not in your kingdom. I'm not under that domain. I'm not a citizen of that country. I'm a citizen of this country. I'm, I'm a citizen of heaven. When I received Jesus Christ, I was adopted. I was I was grafted in by grace through faith, not because of anything that I did, but because of what he did. And I'm no longer in the flesh. He condemned it. He did what no man could do. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He condemned sin in the flesh so that we might know the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, when we're crucified with Christ, the old is passed away. 
and all things become new. My nature is new. My citizenship is new. I don't have to pay crimes to a dominion that I'm no longer under. We sometimes don't conquer sin because we don't realize the truth, the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ, that he's given us the keys. He, Jesus took the keys of sin and death. And when we are in him, we're no longer bound to the law of sin and death that has plagued humanity through the centuries. We are in the kingdom of light. Colossians says that we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. There's so many of us, there's so many of us that have been like sitting in the same jail cell for years and years and years, but we don't realize the key is in our hand. There is power in the blood of Jesus. There is freedom over sin. Our very nature is changed because of him. And we no longer have to live under the law of sin and death. But because of the righteous act of that one man, God himself, who died on the cross, we can be made righteous. Yes, sin is a really big problem. It's a problem in our lives still sometimes, right? But there is hope. There is hope in the cross. There is hope in the blood of Jesus. There is hope in the family of faith as we walk this out together. You're not called to do this alone. Now, there's a difference between justification and sanctification, and we'll get more into that next week. The power of God to live out a holy and righteous life. Some of you are still like baby Christians in the faith. Your, your flesh is the strongest part of you still. Be, grace, be gracious with yourself as the Lord walks you into maturity. There's, I just want I just want to emphasize that there's hope today. There is hope today. Even for some of you who have been dealing with things your entire adult life as a believer, there is hope today. There is power in his blood. And we receive it by faith. Not because of what we do, but because of what he did. We receive it by faith. It says that when we're crucified with Christ, we actually identify with him in the waters of baptism. And there's a death that happens to our flesh. And we come alive in the spirit. Maybe you need to get baptized. Maybe you need to receive by faith that work that he did for us so that sin no longer has dominion or power over you. Do you want that? What an incredible free gift. What an amazing God we serve. What an incredible free gift. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you that you took upon yourself. Thank you, God, that you broke sin and death. You broke the cycle. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Would you stand with me right now? Thank you, God. I don't know what a faith response looks like for you right now. It might look, maybe the Lord's prompting you to get on your knees. Maybe he's prompting you to come up here and receive prayer. Maybe he's just prompting you to open your heart to him and say, I want, I want that free gift. I don't want the power of sin and death to have reign over my life anymore. Would you just 
do something as a physical act of surrender and say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We receive you by faith. Lord, we receive by faith that which we could not do ourselves. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. For more information on Authentic Church, visit us online at AuthenticOC.com.